My name is Tate. I attend King's Cross, and you're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We're working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. I think sometimes you have to experience a thing to understand it. So I can remember, for example, the first time I went to a NASCAR race and um, the green flag dropped and 30-something cars, none of which have exhaust systems, um, floored the gas and the noise was just indescribable. I, I, I was not prepared for the wave of sound that came rushing down the front stretch there. I, years later, um, I, I don't remember anything about that race. I was trying to think this week who I even went with. I think I could remember one of the three guys. I don't even remember what year it was, but I remember that sound like it was yesterday. Or I think about the first time I became a dad. When our oldest daughter was born and all of a sudden I had this whole range of emotions that I didn't even know existed before that moment. There are just some things in life that you have to experience for yourself. Now you can try to understand, you can try to empathize, you can try to relate to what other people are going through, but you just can't. Maybe it's the death of a spouse or of a parent, the size of the Grand Canyon, what it's like to live through a natural disaster, the stress of unemployment or the thrill of winning a championship game. Sometimes you just have to live it in order to get it. And that is what God called a man named Hosea to do in the 8th century B.C. Hosea is living in the northern kingdom of Israel. As you perhaps are reading through your devotional plan this week that Pastor Josh puts out for us, Israel is sometimes referred to by the name of its capital city, Samaria, and sometimes by its most prominent tribe, Ephraim. But that's where he is living, and it's before Assyria conquered. You might know if you've been following along in our study of the story that what we said was we kind of walk through some historical books, and then we get to a place where the wisdom and the prophets start to go back into that history and fill in some texture and color and stories. And so Hosea, the last couple of weeks we've been in the southern kingdom of Judah after the fall, Hosea is in the northern kingdom before it's conquered by Assyria. And here's what we read as the book opens in Hosea 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, the northern kingdom. That's where Hosea lived and where Hosea prophesied. And what's going to happen is God is going to speak to his people through Hosea. He is going to identify their sin. He's going to explain why their sin is so horrifically offensive to him. He's going to warn them of his coming judgment for that sin. And then he's going to hold out hope in spite of the coming judgment that he's promised. But before he could do that, 
He wanted Hosea to understand how he felt. Hosea was going to have to live it so that he would get it when he was preaching it to the people of Israel. Verses 2 and 3. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he, Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now there are some scholarly disagreements on exactly what was going on with Gomer before Hosea married her. It is possible that she was already a quite sexually promiscuous woman who was known to be such in the community. It's also possible that she was spiritually promiscuous, that she was like a lot of other people in Israel who had gone chasing after other gods, and that was also known. The point is not so much her sexual past in the beginning of Hosea 1. The point is that, and this is made explicit in verse 2, God is commanding Hosea to enter into a marriage which is going to be a living parable about Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh. Look back again. Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for... This is the reason I'm telling you to do this, Hosea. The land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so we're told right up front that Hosea's marriage is going to be symbolic of his primary prophetic message. This is what's being lived out in his life. His relationship with his bride, Gomer, is going to represent Yahweh's relationship with his bride, Israel. You tracking? So that's that's the interpretive paradigm of the book in chapters 1 through 3. We get it right here at the beginning. That paradigm is going to extend to Hosea and Gomer's children. Their first son is going to be named Jezreel. Verses 4 and 5 say that's because God is going to break Israel in the valley of Israel. Jezreel. Their daughter in verses 6 and 7, the name that she is given translates to no mercy. And God says it's because I'm not going to show mercy to Israel. Then they have another son, a second son, whose name is actually going to be laced with hope. And his name is going to set up a pattern for the book. It's a pattern that repeats itself identically in the first three chapters, and it's reflective of the overall pattern actually throughout the scriptures. His name is going to translate to mean, not my people, God explains in verses 8 through 11. When Gomer had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, And I am not your God. Yet, verse 10, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. 
And so what Hosea chapter 1 does is it sets up these two themes that are going to play out over the rest of the book. Theme number one is that Hosea's marriage is a picture of God's covenant relationship with his people, his bride. Theme number two is that though judgment is coming, there is hope. And these two themes are going to play themselves out. Now, the question is, if you just read through the first three chapters... Why his marriage? Like that seems like a lot. Can I just tell you that um, I am very glad when God called me into ministry, this was not my call. Like that's, who, who wants that ministry? Why not, you know, God reveals, reveals himself as father. Why not just have one of Hosea's children be really rebellious? God reveals himself as king. Why not have Hosea live through some type of civil unrest or some type of coup that overthrows the king? God revealed himself as a shepherd. Why not call Hosea to go out in the field and live with a bunch of kind of dumb, wandering around, always needing attention sheep? Why marriage? I think it's because when the person you love the most in the world the person with whom you've exchanged vows, the person with whom you have been the most vulnerable and the most intimate, the, the person with whom you have been united as one, when they willingly go and become intimate with someone else, that's an altogether different kind of hurt and betrayal and pain. And if you've ever experienced that, or if you have ever walked alongside someone who is experiencing that, then you understand the type of devastation that that can wreck in people's hearts and minds. And God needs Hosea to understand. He, he wants him to understand the depth of the pain of the message that God is going to speak through him to Israel. And so in chapter 2, that message is going to become clear. It is the first message that God gives to Hosea to preach in Israel. And he likens in it Israel to a mother, the mother of his people, which puts God in the position of being both their father and her husband. And so he says to Hosea in 2.2, Plead with your mother, with the people of Israel. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. And then in verses 2 to 13, God expands on Israel's deep sin again and again and again with this imagery of an unfaithful wife until finally, in verses 14 to 23, he shows Israel mercy Again, Hosea 2.14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. It's a picture of God pursuing his people in their sin and bringing them back to himself. Though this is the way they act, I'm going to go after them and allure them and bring them back and speak tenderly to them. 
Then in chapter 3, Hosea has to live out in his own marriage what God has promised is going to happen between himself and Israel in chapter 2. Hosea 3, 1 and 2. The Lord said to me again, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecketh of barley. We're not given all the details. And there's a lot of speculation about what is that has happened, that Gomer has found herself in this situation. Here's what we know uh, almost certainly. She has either become indebted to a man who is making her work off her debt through some type of promiscuity, or perhaps she has become a prostitute in a pagan temple, which would have, um, there's some historical merit for that. Some scholars even speculate that what is happening in chapter 3 is that she's being sold publicly as a slave, naked and in chains. Regardless of the details, the point is that Hosea goes and redeems her. The best case scenario is that he pays off the debt of his adulterous wife. The worst case is that he is going and literally buying her back. And what follows in chapters 4 to 14, and we're not going to dwell there this morning, but what happens is this in-depth unveiling of Israel's sin, her spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness to Yahweh, and you get both these warnings of God's coming judgment and these reminders that it is possible that there is hope. For those who will turn. And there are a lot of warnings. In those final 11 chapters. And I've just picked out a few samples. There, there's many more than this. But God says of Israel that he will destroy her. Forget her people. Punish them. Discipline them. Pour out his wrath on them. Send his fire on their cities. Bereave them. Drive them out. Reject them and devour them. And yet. The overwhelming message of the book of Hosea is one of love. It's not wrath and judgment. It's love. Our challenge can be, as modern readers, when we read through the book, especially these first three chapters that we're focusing on, is that we barely recognize the love because it is so very different than our own. In our day, love can mean any number of things. It might just mean that you really, really, really like something. I love hot Krispy Kreme donuts. Where? It might be an emotion that you fall into and then you fall out of. Sometimes people say that what true love is is total acceptance of another person. Doesn't matter what they do, doesn't matter what they say, doesn't matter what they believe, doesn't matter how they live. If you love me, you completely and totally accept everything about me. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4.16 that God is love. I think in our day, very often that gets flipped. And people have come to think that love is God. But in Hosea, we're given a picture of love of divine love. 
of God's steadfast love, of true love. I've given you the basic outline of the book. So let's go back and we're going to see four pictures of true love in the book of Hosea. Four pictures of true love. First, we learn through the prophet that true love is selfless. True love is selfless. My interpretation of Hosea 1-2 is that Gomer is at least spiritually unfaithful to God already. I think it's likely that she's also being promiscuous. But she's nothing less than spiritually unfaithful to God. Which means that Hosea, as one who was faithful to God, should, even if she wasn't being promiscuous yet, he should not have married her because she wasn't spiritually aligned with him. This principle will be repeated in the New Testament, right? Don't marry someone who's unequally yoked. Gomer should not have been a candidate for marriage. And God is telling him she's going to be sexually unfaithful as well after their marriage. So I'll kind of paraphrase, if you'll allow me to do that, Hosea 1-2 this way. The Lord said to Hosea, go, marry a woman, but know that she will forsake you and you're going to have forsaken children, just like my people Israel have forsaken me. And then in Hosea 3.1, again, this is just the chip standard version, I'm paraphrasing. He says, see to Hosea, see, I told you she would be unfaithful. Now, you go love her anyway. You go redeem her the way I love my people and I'm going to redeem them. I've done a lot of premarital counseling. I've never sat in front of a couple and said, uh, I have a word from the Lord. He, she will cheat on you. Now, let's talk about the ceremony. I mean, why would anybody go forward? What's in it? For them if that's the situation well true love is selfless I mean what's in it for Hosea to go forward and marry Gomer betrayal heartbreak shame agony a stomach that's constantly full of knots tear stained cheeks questions from his friends and family gossip from his neighbors but see, true love is selfless. True love doesn't love because of it has a great ROI, return on investment. Like, well, I'll give you my love because it'll... Like, what's in it for you when you forgive? And then you forgive again. And then you have to go forgive again. And people start to question your self-respect. Or whether you're even willing to stand up for yourself at all. What's in it for you when you sacrifice your time, your money, your emotional energy? And people think you're just naive. You're just foolish. What's in it for you when you help people who can't help you back? When you serve people who are never going to serve you in return? When you're kind to people who hurt you? When you're patient with people who annoy you? When you're gentle with people who are just bulls in a china shop? What's in it for you? See, true love doesn't ask that question. True love is selfless. Selfless. 
It acts from a place of love, not a place of utility. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is in Athens, Greece. He's talking to some non-believers about God, and he reminds them in verses 24 to 25. This will resonate with Bobby and Jennifer who watched people worship because they think a God lives in a house. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God did not send Jesus into the world to redeem all of those who would repent of their sins and place their faith in him because we're useful. It wasn't because he needs you. It's because he loves you. And true love is selfless. Second, we see in the marriage of Hosea and Gomer that true love is honest. Throughout chapter 2, and really the whole book, God is honest about Israel's sin. I didn't put these on your slides, but... Just listen to the way in chapter 2 that God talks openly about Israel. He says in verse 4 that her children are children of whoredom. In verse 5 that she conceived them and has acted shamefully. In verse 12 that Israel had says, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. And in verse 13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she offered offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So too, when you get to chapter 3, Hosea is not sugarcoating the situation with Gomer. In Hosea 3.3, Hosea says to Gomer, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore. Or belong to another man, so I also be to you, so will I also be to you. It is not loving to call sin righteousness. And it is not unloving to call sin sin. True love is honest. I mean, it sounds really good when people say, God loves you just like you are. And bless their heart, I know what they mean. But that's not really honest. The biblical truth is that God loves you enough to send his son to rescue you just as you are. But he's not going to leave you that way. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It does not say God shows his love for us in this, that he is totally ambivalent about what we do, how much we rebel, whether or not we believe in him, obey him, curse him, worship him, love him. He's totally fine. Just do what you want. God loves you. That's nonsense. You cannot find that in the Bible. What it says is that he loves you enough to send his son to die that you might be redeemed and changed. True love's honest. At King's Cross, we want to love you enough to be honest with you. That apart from Christ, you are now and will be eternally separated from God because of your sin. 
But please keep in mind that Hosea was sent to preach to people who considered themselves religious insiders. He's not preaching in Assyria. He's not like Daniel ministering in Babylon or Ezekiel in Babylon. He's talking to people who considered themselves religious insiders. They thought they were okay. But true love is honest. And it's willing to say hard things. Things like Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that's not very loving, Chip. To claim that Christians somehow have an exclusivity claim on God. How is that loving? Surely God knows that if people just are good people and they try as best as they can, surely whatever God there may or may not be out there, surely things will be okay in the end. If John 14, 6 is true, and if it's not true, then Jesus is a fraud and a liar. We're wasting our time. But if John 14, 6 is true, then it is loving to say Jesus is the only way and apart from him, people are going to live all of eternity separated from God under his active wrath. It is truly loving because true love is honest. It's honest about our problem and it's honest about God's solution to our problem. Third, in Hosea, we see that true love is costly. It's costly. Hosea 3.2, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. There's been a lot of scholarly work done to try to figure out exactly what this equates to and what the back, but the Bible doesn't tell us. But we can assume that if their marriage followed the customs of the time, then Hosea would have already given a bride price to Gomer's family. Now he's going again and buying back what was already his. And please don't read modern sensibilities backwards into the culture of, you know, 750 B.C. and get hung up on, he can't buy her. She ain't his problem. Like, that's not the point. Okay, the, the point is that Gomer represents Israel, and God is saying, I'm going to buy you back because I love you. That's the point. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. True love is costly. Cost God his son. Cost Jesus his life. And if you are going to love others the way Christ has loved you, it'll cost you too. He told us as much in John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. True love is costly. If you love God, it might cost you some relationships. It's definitely going to cost you some habits, some control over your life, some sacrifice of things that you'd rather hold on to. But if you're going to love people, 
The way that God has called you to love people, that's going to cost you too. They're going to take up your time. They're going to disappoint you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to leave you. They're going to drain you. Being in a relationship with them is going to make you vulnerable. That in and of itself has its own cost. So yes, God's love has been freely offered to you. But only because the cost of it has already been paid by Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. It's only free to you because you're receiving it. Even forgiveness isn't free. It's just that Jesus absorbed the cost of your sin so you don't have to. That's love. You understand when you forgive someone, you're just absorbing whatever it is they've done to you. You say, it's okay, I'll just keep it. It's costly. True love is costly. One more. We learn through Hosea's marriage that true love is transformational. It's transformational. After Hosea redeems Gomer, he says to her in Hosea 3.3, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Meaning, he is also not going to be intimate with her after he redeems her for a period of time. See, Gomer didn't need to just jump out of her lover's bed and back into her husband's bed. She needed some time to change. She needed time for her heart to heal. She needed to experience Hosea's redemptive love without muddying it up with her confused, broken views of sexuality. She needed to be transformed. And it's consistent with God's sovereign plan that her experience of that transformation is going to reflect what Israel needs as well. Verses 4 and 5. For, here's the reason Hosea says that that's going to be the state of our marriage for a little bit. For, the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. There's some really, really, really good stuff there about Jesus and the return and his being a king in the Davidic line and what the I can't get into it. So grab me in the lobby if you want to know more about verse 5. Because David the king's already dead. How are they going to look to him? Maybe because there's a king coming who's in the line of David and sits on the throne of David. Anyway, it's good stuff. Got to be a community group questions, maybe, Josh. Here's the point. God's people needed deep-rooted change, heart change. They needed to be transformed by the redemptive love of their God. That's why the book of Hosea gives us such a clear picture of the gospel. Because it rejects the notion that we're fine just as we are. And it rejects the notion that we can fix ourselves. Hosea does not go to Gomer and say, it's okay, baby. I love you. God bless your cheating Lord. Why don't you just come on home? Everything's going to be fine. We're just going to act like none of this ever happened. He didn't say that. But he also doesn't go to her and say, I tell you what. Um, 
I, I'm just, he sends a messenger. I didn't even go. He just sends a messenger. He says, tell you what, if you want to clean your life up and you want to get things a little bit straight, you want to start rebuilding your reputation in the community so it's not damaging mine, you want to get yourself to a place where your life is in order, you're welcome to come home, but it's on you, not me. You got to fix yourself. This is your mess. You clean it up. He doesn't do either of those things. He goes to her. He pays the price for her redemption. He recognizes even her greatest need, this period of of time, even though she probably doesn't recognize it. He does everything necessary for her transformation. He truly loves her, even when she isn't lovable, even when she evidently doesn't love herself. And that kind of love is transformational. The religious leaders of Jesus' day got really angry with him when he started hanging out with sinners. People like Gomer. People like me and you. Matthew 9, there's one such episode. It says this in verses 11 to 13. The Pharisees say to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, as Hosea 6, 6. And Jesus is saying to these learned religious leaders, you think you love God. And you look down on these sinners and tax collectors. You think you're Hosea. You're Gomer. You need to go reread it and understand who you are in the story. You and I are Gomer. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who selflessly left my father's side who loves you enough to be honest with you about your sin, who is willing to redeem you at the cost of my own life so that I can transform you into all that I've designed you to be. That's love. That's true love. That's the love that is available to you if you will simply receive it. Gomer didn't do anything to redeem herself. She just said yes. And that's the love that if you have been redeemed, you're called now to show to other people and to live out in your own life. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this picture that you have given us of your love for your people. Of what true love is. It's not defined by cultural winds or by emotions that go up and down it's defined by this type of action that's selfless we tremble to think of the cost that you paid for our redemption that you would love us so much that you would send your only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life we pray that we will be transformed by the renewal of our minds from one degree to another into increasingly greater images of christ our king Would you help us to receive your love to be a channel through which it flows to the people around us? In Christ's name, amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. 
We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.